It's very beautiful. You sit there, especially when we launch from uh, runway to seven, and right behind you, you have this gorgeous view across the river. And if you're lucky and the air is really clear, you see the mountains, the Alps in the background. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and Barbara, the gliding junkie, and our new guest pilot. Hello, it's Barbara, the gliding junkie. This time I'm joining Chuck from Narromine in Australia, where the World Gliding Championships take place in club class, standard class, and 50 meter class. Well, Australian forecast predicted hot and dry summer, but we've had pretty rainy and stormy few days. Just like now, maybe you can hear it. It's raining and some storms are coming towards us. But at least Narromine Airport is now nicely green and all the teams are already on site. Hopefully the gliding guard serves us good for the rest of the training days and especially for the competition days, which shall start on 2nd of December. Follow the championships on Facebook and Instagram. Check the results on Soaring Spot to keep up to find out who the next world champion is. And if I'm lucky enough, I will uh, interview the next world champion for you. But for now, let's meet another guest of Soaring the Sky podcast. So, Chuck, who are you interviewing today? Thank you, Barbara, for that update. We wish all the contestants there in Nairmine a happy and safe contest. We look forward to hearing more from you after the contest is over. Yes, we do have a new guest pilot today as we head back over the Atlantic to speak with Max, an astronomer in Germany, who decided he wanted to learn how to fly and soon found himself in a glider. He will share his aviation story with us as well as his adventures looking into space. Immediately following his story, Sergio, the Soaring Master, brings us another great segment. Now, if you were listening to our last episode, he dropped a hint on what he would be sharing with us today. All that and more on this episode 144 here on Soaring the Sky. Max, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Happy to have you today. Hi, Chuck. Well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me in the show. Absolutely. Before you get into your soaring stories, what do you do for a living? I'm an astronomer um, by, by education profession here in Germany. So I work for what is called the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in the city of Garching. Um, and uh, this place has, has an unusual concentration of astronomy in the world. It, it, it might be one of the highest concentration of astronomers. Um, it has three institutions. There, there's our institute, which is traditionally more around building um, satellites and, and studying space from space. But so very observational, lots of engineering. The next is there's a Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics. Um, and that's a more theoretical institute. So they, they built huge simulations of the universe and the computer and became very well known for that. And then next to that, there is what is called ESO. So ESO stands for the European Southern Observatory. And they operate the four big telescopes on the mountain Paranal in the Atacama Desert in Chile, which you may or may not have seen a picture of. 
is one of the world's finest observatories. And so, yeah, there, there is a lot of astronomy and it's, it's, it's a fun place to work at. Oh, it's got to be super interesting. You were in Hawaii for a bit? That's right, yeah. After I finished my PhD, I, I continued he, here in Garching also. Continued to work a bit there. Um, but I really wanted to get back to uh, instrumentation, so, so building instruments for telescopes, uh, which I just love doing. Um, and there was an opening of an instrument engineer position at the Japanese Subaru telescope uh, on the big island of Hawaii. So I worked there for one and a half years, and um, they, they have a crazy number of, of instruments. Um, I, I think 14, depending on how you count, where, where any other large observatory, they, they usually have at most four, four instruments per telescope. And that means... Uh-huh pretty much every day something else breaks and you get to oh, fix it yeah so and, and that that is just so much fun i literally on the second day on my job i had both my arms sticking in in a, in a cryostat of, of one of their instruments extracting a detector that was probably worth half a million dollars mm. and it just continued like that it was a blast i, I loved that job it was good fun so in your case you're you're lowering your altitude to soar sailplanes how did that all happen Right. Um, I guess it was a long uh, dream of mine. Um, so my parents both had a uh, license to fly, what, what do you say, motor planes, right? Um, so my my father, even a dual engine plane. So we, we did fly quite a bit. I liked the concept of flying as a child already very much. And, and of course, back then I had the Microsoft Flight Simulator on my computer as well and, and mess around with this. Um, but um, to be fully honest, um, flying motor planes um, as a child, I, I think I didn't really appreciate um, the beauty of, of the landscape around me. And I, I was very often just bored and, and really cold and I really desperately needed to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so my main memories of sitting sitting in these planes and so it took me then until I think it was finishing high school and our physics teacher he was a glider pilot and he offered to give classes in uh sorry um after school and okay. uh, so I signed up for that thinking yeah this this is a different different way of, of approaching flying um, but unfortunately, he got sick, and, and so he had to end the classes, um, and, and that, that didn't really take off. Um, and then I had a, a second go at it when I was at university. I went to the Technical University in Berlin, and of course, they have one of those Aka fleeks. Uh, I, I think you, you talked about them in, in some of your past podcasts. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And that's absolutely. in principle... Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a very interesting way of getting into flying. Of course, um, you build uh, glider planes, and you fly them. But well, what they tell you when, when when you talk to them is well, be prepared to spend a lot of hours in the shop, compared to not so many hours in the air. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, and and of course now in hindsight, I I understand that's just part of that hobby, right? Isn't it? Right. But initially, I was a bit maybe taken back. And, and then 
um, I had to actually interrupt university because back then military service was still mandatory in Germany. Oh, and wow. okay. um, since I didn't do that before university, just eager to do something else but military, they pulled me out and I did then, well, not military service, but civil service uh, here, which, which is in, in Germany the, or used to be the, the alternate way of, of serving if, if you didn't want to uh, learn how to fight necessarily. You would then work in a hospital or a nursing home, etc. Uh, okay. All right. And then coming back, I honestly, um, it's, it's, it's not an easy situation to uh, having been pulled out of university, going back in all the, all the people you started together with, they, they have long sort of proceeded to, to higher levels and, and you're back almost square one. So I, I was just focused on finishing that off. So then, then yeah. soaring didn't happen for me either. And um, it then took a few more years. We lived abroad and came back and lived abroad again and came back. I, I started and finished my PhD. That, that was all very busy times. But then we moved to the city of Oberschleißheim, also just north of Munich. And they have a very famous airfield, which used to be one of the airfields where the Zeppelin was supposed to land. Or I guess did land. Oh, wow. Yeah. They have, I think, a number of gliding clubs it might be two three maybe even four i i don't know i i walked up to them and talked to them and, and said listen i only live um five minutes away uh, walking distance really um that would be a great opportunity and they said yeah um that's great why, why did you move to Wischleisheim? and i told them well um we're, we're becoming parents and uh, we need more space. Uh, they looked at me and said, yeah, nah, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> like, all right, okay. And, and of course they were right. Yeah, a newborn is really not a situation where you want to spend every weekend on the airfield. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I guess it didn't happen then either. And then, sorry, this is becoming a long story, but uh, eventually, a few years ago, my wife found an advertisement, um, Kids Flying Day, I guess it was called, at, at one of our local clubs. So they offered rides for children. And, and so we primarily went there for kids to get a ride. Um, and, uh, oh, yeah. But we also got a ride. And, and I think that really bit me and said, geez, Max, now I, I really need to do this. <laughs> and yeah, right. you, you know how it then is. You need to get permission from your wife and your kids. Um, right. Then the pandemic hit, so it was a bit slow. But then the best friend of my neighbor, he, he's a glider pilot, and he suggested and then I check out uh, two, two clubs that, that he knew had, had a good number of teachers and were very active clubs. And one of them was, was the Schilderkopf, which is close to Donauwörth. It's the home club of Stefan Langer. Oh, yeah. That, that turned out to be a really excellent choice. Good number of teachers, all really nice uh, people. Um, I started this last April, um, and then it's a fairly typical... Thing here, you you spend a season learning to fly. You typically solo at the end of this. Uh, then you do your groundwork over the winter. The next year, you first learn how to solo again, and then uh, you work on your final curriculum until you take your check right. Um, yeah, I guess that's how it happened. Now, in in there somewhere, I believe you were listening to the podcast and you had heard about 
our friend uh, Scott Manley uh, does a lot of simulator flying, and you contacted him. That's right. Yes. Um, I don't know how long ago was that Chuck that he was on the show. Was that um, a year ago? Probably a bit more. Oh, it's been a while. I'd, you know, I'd have to go back. There's so many episodes now. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it's fantastic. And and he may have reappeared. Um, I think it was actually just before the winter season um, that that he was on your show, and he explained. Um, he he is really keen on teaching people. So he, I think he was a high school teacher. Sorry, Scott, if I get this wrong. Definitely was a teacher, and um, also a flight instructor. Um, but he got yep. really keen on on teaching people uh, soaring virtually. And um, I think he, he has a booth also usually in Oshkosh where he shows people um, virtual gliding. And... Yeah, that's, that's where I first met him. Actually. Oh, really? Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he has a good good line of people waiting there for me. I'm sure it's a good good, uh, good thing to have. So it, it resonated very well with me. I, I messed a really, little bit around with, with flight simulators during uh, my first months of, of, of instructions. I think I installed, what was that, X-Planes, I think, just because I, I usually have a Mac, and, and that was the only um, decent flight simulator that would run on a Mac. And so you can okay, a, yeah. get an ASK-21 uh, for X-Planes as well. And so, you know, you do what you do when you're naive. You, you, you sit down, and, and you're very eager, and, and you fly every evening, and then the next weekend you, you drive to the airfield, and you think, now you know it all. <laughs> and guess what? <laughs> Not true. <laughs> Not true at all. Uh, it was a bit embarrassing, but um, no, I, I think it was a bit of fun. So I think I, I got the concept. What what I didn't appreciate is you still need an instructor, no, no matter whether you do it, yeah, uh, real right, or or virtually. Of course, yeah. And and honestly, I think the lighting simulator that that is a um, what do you say, a two-edged sword. Um, it can be, I think, extremely yeah. powerful, helping you to become a good glider pilot, but it can also be dangerous. And you need somebody who watches a little bit what you're doing. Yeah. I think I came yeah. to that conclusion. So, yeah, I, I, um, I wrote to him, I think the next day after your show, listening to your podcast, which, Chuck, I, I really have to say is a fantastic podcast. Thank you very much for doing this. I had such a great time um, listening to. Yeah, absolutely. We've had some great guests, so you know that makes that makes the podcast. So I, I appreciate all those people, including yourself. Right, but but also, I mean, there's a lot of work and effort putting this together, contacting people, and and then all the editing around it. Um, so thank you very very much for this. Um, really, I I think yeah. It, it gave the whole sort of time of, of becoming a pilot to me is a, a very special touch. I was listening to your podcast on the way to the airfield and it's, it's about an hour drive from here. So that was just perfect to set me in the mood and then coming back after a day at the airfield, uh, winding down, listening to another podcast. Really fantastic. So thank nice, you very nice, much. Very for cool. Us. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Um, but coming back to Scott, so I, I contacted him and asked him whether he would be willing to do this. And um, the, I, I think the only new situation for him was that it was somebody abroad. And of course, there are some questions about um, internet connectivity, etc. So we, we did a few tests. Um, and 
of course, he he doesn't use X planes. He uses Condor. Uh, yep, that's right. Fantastic yeah. as well. And so initially, I tried to run that in a virtual machine. That didn't go very well. So I, I got myself a Windows machine. Had to. Um, and and then yeah. this this started to work really well. Geez, I I think we spent almost a hundred hours together um, uh, flying virtually. Um, in in oh, very nice. Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, it was really serious. Um, for for some time, we met twice a week, and I I agree in every single aspect with what he says. It's just such um, a fantastic way to. What do you say? Enriching your your sort of education, um, because you can look yep. at so many situations in in a lot of detail that you just can't ever in in a glider plane. Um, you you are in full control of the time of the weather. Um, you're in control of what happens at any given situation, um, and you can practice that again and again and again. I mean, just rope breaks, right? Um, I, I don't, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, yeah. I don't think we ever practice enough rope breaks. A because it's dangerous, um, and B because right. <laughs> it costs money. And and I mean every I I don't yeah. know what you guys pay, but um, here about every launch is is thirty euros or so. Of course, if it's just yeah, a right. short takeoff, not as much, but still it costs money. You can you can practice that a hundred times in a few hours and and really get. Get yeah. very used to what do you do at every single situation. I I think the uh, very early on a real eye opener. Um, Chuck, when he, Scott sits down with you for the first time and explains you how he teaches somebody how to fly a glider plane virtually, he has a program laid out, which is a which is a flow chart. Every bubble. Uh, in that flowchart is is a skill that you're supposed to learn, right? Uh, so speed control, um, then learning how to fly coordinated curves, um, et cetera, et cetera, right? And eventually you, you learn how to control the spin, uh, how to land, how to land in crosswind. And I looked at, at this flowchart. I, I had soloed at that point, right? And so I thought, ah, well, okay. I, I know this is after that, you soloed, right? yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was after the first season. So I thought, well, I know right, all right. this. Um, so I, I think we can just sort of skip forward and, and maybe you could teach me a little bit of thermaling or uh, help me improve right. on sort of cross-country skills. Uh, I had just soloed, so that already tells where I was at that point. And I said, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, Max, uh, let's start at bubble one. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and it turned out to be a very good idea, really. There, there's just so many subtleties that, that you that you get wrong or you realize you really hadn't fully understood and appreciated. I mean, just the, the first, pretty much the first thing we did was to fly a traffic pattern. Of course, in Condor, you can switch off turbulences and you can switch off wind. And that allows you to learn what the perfect traffic pattern looks like. When I fly at Schilbarkhof, we never have no winds and no turbulences, at least not at the times when we usually fly. And so it's always a sort of a moving target that you're trying to move towards to as a student. And then, of course, every instructor oh, yeah. is, yeah. is different as well, and they do things different, which is very confusing, at least yeah. it was for me. And um, this, this sort of perfect pattern in Condor gave me something to hold as, as the uh, ideal, so to speak. 
And then you can turn on crosswind and you see how it's then changing from that ideal situation and how you need to either increase or shorten the length of your um, crosswind, um, how, how you plan your, your downwind, how, how far you fly out or, or, or don't. And, and then suddenly the whole um, pattern becomes an adjustment around the ideal according to the situations that you actually find yourself right. in, which, yeah. which was fantastic. And I think in, in, in ways or others, this applied to just all of the other lessons that, that we had together. Um, you, you can hold the plane, of course, in the air. You can look at it then from different angles and he can point out yeah. to you what went wrong, what doesn't, um, uh, or what went really well. Um, so, no, that, that was a fantastic experience. And I think uh, we should really consider adding virtual lessons to the curriculum. Um, of, of, yeah, absolutely. And I've talked about it before on the podcast, but it's a great way to spend your, especially if you're in, in part of the world that, that has maybe a moderate to long winter, you can spend all that time, you know, practicing different scenarios and it's, it's a great tool for that. Absolutely. Come back in the spring and be, doesn't feel like you've been not flying all those months. You know, you still feel like you have some of it. Absolutely. I think there is one, one word of caution that is exclusively my own experience. And I, I should say as disclaimer, I, Probably the landing part was always the hardest part for me to uh, get right. Right. After flying Condor, it almost was harder. And okay. I think I concluded for myself, and I'm, I'm happy to take sort of criticism, but I, I concluded for myself that landing is a very visual thing because as you approach the ground, you need to judge your distance to the ground. And that really... Is, is almost about the texture of the grass or, or the pavement around you, um, the exact look of the trees and shadows. And I think this is very difficult to get really right in, in a simulator. And, and just finding that perfect moment to sort of start the flare, I think that was difficult for yep. me afterwards. Everything else, however, was just, natural really in particular so the next rope break with, that we then simulated was oh, okay so I'm, I'm flying back to the airfield and landing <laughs> it was an absolute right. non-event <laughs> at that point so yeah yeah really. <laughs> um, so no i think it did a lot of good and i'm, I'm sure it it made me a safer pilot profit from that for a very long while so i'm very grateful to scott thank you scott Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes. Staffed by Adam, Kelly, Laura, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. What are you doing for soaring now? Are you now that you've soloed? Um, you 
are you just doing a lot of close to the airport flying? Or are you trying to reach out a little bit? Yes. Where are you? So, um, well, I, I got my check ride fairly late in the season. Um, I think it was late August. And no, it was the first few days of September. And um, our okay. season ends end of October. We are in one of those countries, which unfortunately has almost half a year of, of no soaring season. Right. So yeah. um, I, I did only a few flights, a few really nice ones um, uh, late, late season. Now it's, it's time for maintenance of, of our plane. So there, there is a situation. Um, I, I guess Germany is, is famous for paperwork, right? Isn't it? Um, uh, so everything is very controlled. When, once you get your check right, yeah. you're not allowed to fly anymore. And I, that to me came a little bit as a shock <laughs> um, because, yeah, you are now a glider pilot, you're a certified glider pilot, but you don't have your license okay. yet. And so getting okay. a license here can take up to four weeks. And uh, when okay. the season is ending and you see nice clouds on the sky, those four weeks can get very <laughs> long. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, so you have to wait till the license in, arrives before you get you back not, in the flyer. You're not allowed to fly unless you have your license with you. Uh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, huh. you know, um, it's honestly, it's a bit ridiculous. But it is how it is. And um, so my, my almost my nicest flight was just before that happened. Um, so I was allowed to fly alone. I had to remain in safe flight distance to, to the airfield, of course. Yeah. Um, and, but it was a wonderful day with, with, with great thermals. Um, but the prediction wasn't all that good. And that meant two things. A, there wasn't too many people at the airfield, so it was really quick to, to get, get a launch. And also it means there weren't too many other planes in the air. And that too, I, so to a new pilot, it's still a little bit of um, a concern to thermal with uh, too many other planes. And of course, everybody is um, uh, almost invisible under the clouds. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I still get a bit nervous if there's too much other plastic or glass and it's, uh, flying around. Yeah. So yeah. it was not that day, but it was the time where birds were migrating. So every every cloud had had a few birds flying underneath. That was just the greatest fun to, to thermal with them. Uh, after almost three hours, I uh, I again found a cloud and, and I was looking for, for the updraft. I again saw two birds. So I started flying towards them, and then it didn't turn out to be just two birds. Uh, it suddenly looked more like five or maybe ten, then more like twenty birds. Yeah. It was actually young oh. <laughs> storks uh, flying in, in a group, oh, wow. and, and I got to fly with them. And that was just amazing. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. I, I think that was my absolute highlight so far. I bet many others will still come, but that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, flying with the birds, definitely some of my favorite flights for sure. I can definitely relate to that. Can you tell me a little bit about your club? Yeah. What the soaring conditions are, what kind of lift you're getting there? Right, gladly, yeah. So um, the Club Stilberghof 
sits um, on, on the western side of Bavaria, close to the river Danube. Uh, actually at the intersection of the river Danube and Lech. And it's a little bit elevated. It's above, about 100 meters um, above the Danube. So it's, it's very beautiful. You, you sit there, especially when we launch from uh, runway to seven, and right behind you, you have this gorgeous view across the river. And if you're lucky and the air is really clear, you see the mountains, the Alps in the background, uh, south of you. Ah, yeah, beautiful, very beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. So lift is exclusively thermals. Uh, so you okay. need to learn a thermaling. Uh, we, we don't have any good ridges really that I know of, at least not, not that I was able to go there. Um, our, what we refer to as our runway is the, um, we call it the Schwäbische Alp. So it's a stretch of um, low altitude mountains or hills that runs towards the southwest from where we are. And that okay. could ultimately even connect you to the Alps if you have a very good day. Oh, well, yeah. um, and, right. uh, so it's, it's a very nice area. Um, it, it's a very good soaring area. The airspace is not as constrained as in, in some other places in Germany. I guess the, the only one that really we need to be aware of is, is Munich airspace Charlie uh, towards the east. Um, but um, it's, it's relatively free-flying still, uh, which, which is nice to have around us. It's a good and active club. So, oh, I don't know how many instructors I'm guessing here. It, it might be 12 or 14 instructors oh. that we currently have. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, which, which is fantastic. Yeah, a lot of clubs have a lot of students, but then they'll have not so many instructors. So it becomes that's, an issue, you know, when you're trying to go fly and you're a student and there's nobody there to instruct yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's good. That's tough. But I tell you, we, we have almost the opposite problem, and that is not much better either. Well, yeah, it can go there. Yeah, there were definitely weekends where I was alone there, which is, of course, great for me, but um, it. it tells you that as, as many other clubs i guess we have a bit of a problem attracting young 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 pilots um yeah outside of that i, I think there is a good bunch of 10 people so not always the same 10 people but 10 people that that show up uh, every weekend um well, probably 10 to 15 people so it's a good and active club then actually that kind of um reminds me of a question i wanted to ask you what do you think that your club and other clubs can do better to not only retain their members, but get new members as well. Right. Yeah. I, I think actually for us, really getting the new member part is the difficult part. People here tend to be very loyal to their clubs and, and they stay long, but getting new members is an issue. And since a few years, um, we find that we have, um, less active members than passive members. I, I'm not sure if you have a thing like passive members as well. Is they, they still stay in the club. They don't fly anymore, but they are still attached. Right, but they're not active, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, and, and that, that is a sign that, that something is maybe not really going the right direction. And, and people are trying, so the teachers put together um, flying with... Um, the Volkshochschule. So we have a thing here in Germany. It's a little bit, I think, like community college in the US. 
So you, you can do yeah. evening mm-hmm. classes to learn, I don't know, languages, or you learn everything about mushroom picking <laughs> or whatever. Um, but <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, they also put one together for, for uh, flying glider planes. And I think we managed to get one or oh, nice. two new students like that. Yeah. Okay. And then cool. they had an event where they took practices from a nearby company uh, for a weekend uh, to, to fly glider planes. And that might have brought one or I think it was one new student uh, who came in from that. But I, I think it's still not enough. I think one ultimate problem that we have is that our lives have become so incredibly accelerated, right? Everything is really very dense these days and it's really hard to spend a whole day or even two days on a weekend um, at the club, right? Um, because we, you have yeah, so many true. other commitments. Yeah. And I don't know a really good yeah. answer to this, but one way I was thinking was maybe we need to break with this. Maybe we do need to think about working a little bit more like maybe also the, the motor plane community is working where you are there only for half a day or something. Um, needs yeah. a lot of organization, of course, but... Um, I could see how sort of younger people who want to go to their soccer clubs in the morning or soccer competitions um, might have then an easier time to also spend time at the airfield. I don't know. It's it's a tough problem. Yeah. I think that's actually a good idea. I, th- I think that would work out for a lot of people if they have like a four-hour block where they could not have to plan on the whole day. Yeah, yeah. It's an all-day thing. You get there in the morning, you get the gliders out, we talk about what we're going to do make sure everything's ready to go and then you end up being there till five six o'clock at night i'm not complaining i'm just saying that's just how it works and that's great especially when you're learning to fly because you're all about it you know but for some people yeah you spend that whole day it's kind of tough to do that every week it is and and also to be fully honest for me even right my, my kids they they go to tennis competitions they they love tennis and um, I, I cannot be there with them in, in the morning if, if I go flying. So it's always a compromise. But obviously, yeah, this right. only works yeah. when, when people are good about organizing themselves because you cannot, I mean, obviously, planes need to get out in the morning. They need to be put back into the yeah. uh, hangar in, in the evening. But I think this, this might yeah. be something we could try. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I think the punchline is more... We, we we may have to try to organize this activity around uh, the new lifestyle that, that we all find ourselves in a little bit. Um, that, that's I think yeah. the greatest problem Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. So are you, are you looking at any gliders in the future? Are you just flying your club gliders or what would you like to do there? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I've been browsing. Uh, so I, there there is one famous website here in Europe, Siegelflug.de which just happens to be the go-to place for everybody. I've been browsing through that website. But to be honest with you, I'm still at a state where many of those letter-number combinations really don't mean very much to me. <laughs> um, right. I, I think, yeah, I, I kind of have this bug. It, it would be nice to have something to call your own just because you can set it up in exactly the way that you like it. And also because yeah, exactly. I'm so already from my job, I really love to fiddle with stuff and, and to um, I have a screwdriver in the hand and, and to do stuff on, on the airplane. I think I would love that. Yeah, 
But I, th- I think we're fortunate. We, we have, for my level, there's two Discus 1 uh, that we're allowed to fly. And okay, after nice. that, there is a Discus 2. Uh, I think you need to have, I don't know what the number of hours oh. was in the air, but then, then you can transition to that. Oh. Uh, we have a Duo Discus. Very nice. Um, and so we, we have good planes. And so in, oh, yeah. in all honesty, I, I don't think that over the next years I will be in any need for for uh, something uh, really better, and um, right. also it's it has always been very easy to get a plane. So there was never you know a fight around uh, who gets there first, just so that you can. Okay, you're not waiting around for an yeah, aircraft. No, yeah, it's the other way around. So yeah, that makes a big difference. It certainly does. No, I, I I think I'm sure if there was two weekends in a row with great thermals and i couldn't fly because all the planes were gone that would definitely change my desire to get something (laughs) but that hasn't happened yet so i've been very lucky hey max what do you think if i throw a lightning round at you sure go ahead all right so of course the object of the lightning round is uh quick quick questions quick answers and uh we'll see what happens now this one we kind of touch base but uh what is your dream glider if money is no object. Oh, wow. If money is no object, um, I guess it would be a two-seater. Um, and knowing nothing about gliders, I think everybody um, seems to think that ARC is, is sort of uh, what you really want to have. But I think nice. just the idea of flying with somebody else, um, I like this. I, I like to have a chat. Things tend to get boring for me after <laughs> a few hours. Yeah. All right. What is on your bucket list for places you would love to go soaring? Oh, I guess so many. But I have I have lived some time in California, and I would love to see the Sierras and to fly around that area. Yeah, Lake Tahoe. Um, what is the, the the Minden Airfield? Is that right? I would love to fly there. Flight preparation: day before, day of. Um, day before, not so much. Don't don't go to bed too late, I guess, uh, because we need to get up early and I have yeah. a, a drive. Um, on the flight there, I, I have, at this point, a backpack with, with all the stuff that I need that I just throw in the car and take with me. Um, we are very religious about pre-flight checks um, and checklists, uh, nice. which I think is a very good thing. Absolutely. Favorite soaring book? Oh, I I don't think that I've read enough to really call out my favorite one. Um, Cross-Country Flying, Reichman, I, I started reading, and, and that's a lot of fun to read. I'm sure there are so many others out there that I still need to touch before I'm competent to say what my favorite one is. What would you value more if you get into contest flying? Would you like to win a contest, or would you rather set a record? Uh, I've, I've done neither, not very far away still from doing this. Um, I think setting, I'd probably be more inclined to try and setting a record, uh, to be honest, um, because this is something that you can do on your own um, with patience. It doesn't, I, I think competitions, um, uh, there's a lot of action and I'm sure they're a lot of fun, but I, I would probably enjoy setting a contest, a long distance flying contest or long duration contest. There's awesome right. records being set in the last months even, right? Yeah, there is. Absolutely. 
Do you fly for speed, distance, or you don't care? Oh, pure, pure joy of, of flying. <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. Land out. Okay, you have two options. Busy towered airport in between commercial jetliners or a hayfield. A hayfield. I think, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I think here land outs are very common. We, we don't typically get farmers shooting at us. And <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I think that that is always um, a very natural option to us, actually. Okay, there's an emergency and you have two options. Jump out with a parachute or land in a lake. Um, yeah, I, I heard that question in your previous podcast, definitely landing in a lake. Um, I just think once you're in the parachute, you're not in control of the situation anymore. And that scares yeah, me. You yeah. don't know what's going to happen yeah. to you. I would definitely land in a uh, lake. Yeah, absolutely. When do you check the pressure in the main tires? Per flight, per day, per month, <laughs> per season, or when it looks low? Oh, um... I think honestly, if it looks low, but then um, in right. particular, we have this issue with our K21. It always looks low. <laughs> so we, we, we check all the time, um, <laughs> which is annoying. The fairing around it is so low, you can't get to the valve without taking it off. And that has cost us. So uh, one, one of the things that I have in, in, my, in my trunk is a kit with one of those little, do you know, these um, uh, battery powered pumps. Um, I brought yep, that right. and um, a, a power drill just to get the screws out quickly. <laughs> yeah. Right, nice. Max, your emergency plan when the tow plane power fails on takeoff roll at 40 knots? Oh, well, pull the release and land behind the plane um, if I'm already in the air. Yeah. So what is your favorite soaring video? Favorite soaring video? Um, I think this would be at this point a Stefan Lange video. He is soaring along the coast of New Zealand, um, getting very low a few times above beaches, um, but that just looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, that, that video is definitely beautiful. Yeah, I've checked that out myself. So if you were to associate music with soaring, would it be classic? rock theatrical or nothing but the vario um actually i probably preferably nothing but the sound of the wind <laughs> i, I <laughs> right? so i'm i'm not good enough yet to really thermal without the vario on but i've trying tried to practice this and i just find it so nice when it's quiet and, and you're trying to just feel the force of the nature um, rather than have a device beeping at you. So this is definitely something that I'll try to do more often in the future. And no, I think music would actually be distracting. Yeah, there's something beautiful about the quiet for sure when you're soaring. Right. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Max, thanks for joining us. I've had a really good time speaking with you. And here at the podcast, you know, we do have that habit of uh, touch, touch and base with our guests again to see what they're up to. So I'm looking forward to seeing where your soaring has gone. Yeah, thank you, Chuck, again for having me. It was 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 a lot of fun talking to you. 
And let me say again, I'm, I'm so grateful for what you're doing here for us listeners, but also for, for the sport of soaring. It's, it's a fantastic way of promoting it. And um, really, I, I've learned a lot listening to your podcast. There were amazing episodes out there. And, and I very much recommend everybody who's considering to become a soaring pilot or um, is in the process of, or even if you are, to listen to all of them. I, I have enjoyed every single one of them. So thank you very much, Jack. Yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of content there. So yeah, scroll through those episodes and there's a lot of guests we've had on. I'm definitely grateful for that. In our last episode, we talked about how the story market has reduced in size lately. Uh, there has never been so few sailplane manufacturers and so few new types in production. There are many reasons for this, changes in the serving community, the attraction of new joiners to the sport, and lots of other reasons. Well, these problems, they are new, and they have been around for some decades now. And in the 80s, there was an attempt to counter these problems, which was the revival of an old project from the Soaring community, the attempt to make Soaring an Olympic sport and worthy of Olympic medals. Well, how did this happen? Join me in the series of three episodes about the tragic story of the world class and the PW5. My name is Sergio, I'm the person behind Soaring Master. If you want to know more about this project and the Soaring Master course, the Follow me on Instagram at Master. Many are not aware that gliding came very close to becoming an Olympic sport in the 30s. Soaring was included in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Since Germany was the host country, it, every modern Olympics host country has a right to add two national sports in the Olympics that they will host. When gliding was added to the 1936 Berlin Olympics, a design competition was held in Germany to develop an Olympic glider type for the competition. At the time, four different countries submitted their designs, and the chosen one was the German DFS Olympia, a very famous sailplane. I believe that most have already heard about the Olympia. It's a glider with excellent qualities uh, that was massively produced worldwide, both in production lines and by home builders. Well, the experience was so successful that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, included Soaring in the 1940s Tokyo Olympics, which never took place due to the onset of World War II. After the Second World War and the following Cold War years, all efforts for Olympic gliding went dormant until 1987, a long time after the 1936 Olympics, almost 50 years had gone by. Well, back in 87, the IOC contacted the FAI, the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, that we all know, about it and express their interests to give gliding a second chance and they waived with the possibility of including 
Sorin as a demonstration sport uh, in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics in Spain. Well, in the same year, in 87, there was the uh, World Gliding Championship and the matter was brought up by the, to the entire uh, Sorin community by the IGC, the International Gliding Commission. Usually, uh, every World Gliding Championship is preceded by a conference of, of STIF, the Scientific and Technical Organization for Gliding, an institution that encourages and brings together all the scientific works related to gliding, from technical papers to competitive analysis and recommendations. Well, at the 1987 World Gliding Championship in Benalla, Australia, Paul Schweizer published his paper about the Olympic proposal entitled An International One Design Class and the Olympics, showing the advantages of having a one design class with international design competition, both to facilitate the Olympics proposal and to increased access to soaring uh, worldwide. The International Gliding Commission displayed interest in the idea and several discussion panels were created within the IGC to determine the requirements for a glider which would be called the world class. The specifications for an Olympic uh, sailplane were published in 1989, two years after the Benalla uh, announcement. And those requirements for an Olympic sailplane are very interesting to analyze. First, it should be low cost, and this was emphasized. Second, it had to be safe, have easy controllability. Uh, the wingspan should lie between 12 and 15 meters. The performance should be of at least 1 to 30 best glide ratio. The stall speed should be less than 65 kilometers per hour, roughly 35 knots, and a minimum sink rate of 0.75 meters per second. The glider should be low cost to bring gliding to places where it didn't exist, and the ultimate goal was for its price to be half of a popular car in 1980s parameters. And in places where Surin was already very well established, the aim, together with other initiatives, was to increase the reach of the sport amongst the youth. Therefore, this design would have to be able to be constructed with minimal factory requirements and delivered in the form of kits. None of the above characteristics or requirements could be compromised for safety, low cost or controllability. Well, the competition was to be divided, the design competition uh, was to be divided in two stages. The first would be a design competition with the presentation of all studies and proposals of, of world-class uh, sailplane design. And the second stage would be conducted with 10 selected projects whose developers should bring their aircraft for flight test trials by the IGC judging committee. Well, it's very interesting to note the idealism of this proposal and the concern with, with increasing the reach of our sport and the number of pilots worldwide, something that we still strive for today. 44 applications were received by the IGC from various countries. And one interesting aspect is the presence of universities amongst uh, contenders, such as the Warsaw Polytechnic University, 
national Syrian associations like the uh, Aeroclub d'Italia, and even individuals. We, there's, there was an American individual uh, who sent his proposal. And all of this, guys, in a pre-internet era. There was no internet back then. We had fax. <laughs> that was the maximum. So notice how much effort was put into this and how the Syrian community uh, embraced this, this chance. The gliding community, this, the gliding scientific community, unconditionally supported the initiative. A new sailplane wing profile was developed and published in scientific journals, tests in wind tunnels, and the results were made available for any participant of the design competition to use it free of charge. However, guys, the 1992 Barcelona Olympics would become the edition with the highest number of sports in the modern era Olympics. 25 different sports were scheduled. Well, the organization had to start cutting uh, what was possible because organizing so many events in the time frame usually taken by, by Olympics became impossible with so many sports. And Surin was excluded from the sports of that edition. Well, all the research I did on this topic was not able to determine the exact date of the announcement of, the, of this sad news. It was undoubtedly a severe blow to to motivation of everyone involved, but it did not interrupt the project, uh, which surely had to begin at some point in the gliding history. And, well, nothing stopped it to be uh, brought up again to the 1996 Atlanta Olympics in the US. So the selection for the design of the Olympic uh, sailplane carried on, IGC carried on, and of the 44 submitted projects, seven passed the final test stage held in September, between September, September and October of 1992 in Germany. One month after the end of the Barcelona Olympics, by the way, which the project was born to serve. The flight trials uh, took place in Oelinhausen, Germany, at uh, the local aero club there, with the support of DLR, which is the German Aerospace Research Establishment, a very famous Air and Space Institute. And the competitors who brought sailplanes to the final stage were uh, an individual from the US, that we have already mentioned about it, Sidniep. Uh, Secondly, there was PZL Bialsko from Poland, the famous sailplane uh, manufacturer brought the SZD-51 Junior in its uh, Dash 2 version. Uh, most of us, I believe mean, that many followers here, and including myself, uh, my, f my first uh, single-seater solo was in a SZD-51-1 Junior. For instance, the Dash 2 was created uh, for this competition. It was uh, slightly lighter. The third competitor who brought sailplanes to that second stage of flight trials was from Czech Republic, Let, the famous uh, Czech sailplane manufacturer, famous for Blanek uh, production and development, brought the Solo L33. From Italy, we had the Velino, a T-tail uh, sailplane, 
brought by the Aero Club d'Italia. The fifth was uh, the uh, Warsaw Polytechnic University with the PW5. The sixth was from Russia, from the group MACTA, brought Russia 1, 11 meter wingspan sailplane, a very small sailplane. And the same manufacturer, the group MACTA from Moscow, Russia, brought the seventh type that was flown in that event, uh, Russia AC4, uh, with a wingspan of 12.5 meters. Well, it's very curious in the absence of contenders from Germany, the country with the highest number of, of pilots and glider manufacturers in the world, and by far the largest market. But indeed, no German projects were uh, brought up to stage two. During the evaluation uh, with the IGC selection committee, composed of gliding legends such as Derek Pigot, Weinholz, the DLR instrumented the prototypes and assisted in the evaluation of the sailplanes. Of the projects evaluated to this second stage, the American project Signet uh, was declared insufficiently prepared and was not flown. It was only evaluated on the ground. And the Russia 1, the, the sailplane with a 11 meter wingspan, had a failure in, uh, in flight uh, in its spoilers, uh, forcing the pilot to outland. In total, 106 flights were conducted during those flight trials totaling 74.7 flight hours by different test pilots who assessed controllability, feasibility of serial production, manufacturing costs, and the adherence to the specifications. The projects were ranked in the following order. The winner, or the first place, was the PW5. Second, the Russia AC4. And in third place, the SCD51-2. The IGC's uh, jury final conclusions were the following. First, all projects had minor deviations from specifications. Secondly, the project that best met the specifications was the PW5, and it required the, the fewest number of adaptations. The jury unanimously considered the PW5 the suitable aircraft for the world class. So the winner was the Varso Polytechnic University, which also had to uh, double-check the cost plan that was presented for the serial production of the, of the PW5. It had to certify the aircraft in Europe within one year and detail the possibility of amateur kit construction and also to address the, the design changes uh, raised by the committee. The uh, FAI, the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale, then had two alternatives at hand, given that all designs fell short from specifications. They would either accept the PW5 as the winner of the competition, betting that the project would be certified without major issues and that the studies presented were satisfactory, or they would either extend the end of the design competition, giving another year for the seven competitors to present their projects in flight again, uh, now closer to certification in a more mature stage, 
but at the expense of losing timing with the IOC, with the International Olympic Committee, which was favorable of including Soaring in the Atlanta 1996 Olympics. The IGC decision was announced in March 1993. The PW5 was selected as the Olympic glider for the newly created world class. Since it was originated as a university project, the design rights were sold to the recently privatized uh, PZL Swidnik company, which would certify the PW5 in March 1994, one year after the selection took place. Well, do you guys think that that's the end of the story? <laughs> we are only starting. In the next episode, we are going to see how Polish politics, production problems, and the first World Class Championship influenced the outcome of the last initiative to make Surin an Olympic sport. If you want to see the pictures of the sailplanes mentioned here uh, in this uh, uh, podcast and some other cool pictures from the selection process in Germany back in 1992, I will post them in my Instagram, at Master. By the way, for more tips and advice, follow me on Instagram, at Master, or check my website, soaringmaster.com. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez. <laughs>